You know, God, it is. noticing that other people uh, happen to be uh, crying. Perhaps you wonder what the fuss is about, and um, I don't think the Austells would mind me sharing with you. If you're in the dark, you probably need to know this story. Um, the woman that just sang about the faithfulness of God, about 60 days ago, uh, in a routine uh, checkup, uh, was discovered in her blood work to be uh, carrying leukemia. And on the uh, 29th of uh, November, we'll begin a round of bone marrow transplant, which is a very rigorous um, uh, medical procedure. And uh, to hear her uh, sing of God's faithfulness. I have one other thing that I need to bring to your attention. If you want to take this time to find uh, Luke 15, it might give me a chance to get a hold of myself. <clears throat> nice. My wife can leave. <laughs> I have to stay up here. Now. <clears throat> I have one other announcement, but it really isn't an announcement, and that's why I've saved it to this juncture. It really uh, represents an expansion of the ministry here at Gracie Van, and, and in, in one sense, I'm uh, overjoyed to be able to um, share this with you. In another sense, uh, it is it is, a, uh, it is a commentary on the age. It has become, uh, uh, I have become aware that even within the church family here at Gracie Van, that there is a need that exists that uh, isn't particularly addressed uh, by any ministry that we have in place. That, um, that need has to do with uh, a battle that some of you are waging against substance and uh, chemical addiction. Um, if you are struggling with uh, an ongoing chemical or substance addiction, or, or simply an abuse of those things, I want to tell you that we, uh, we want to offer you something. Um, we, are, we are beginning a ministry here at Gracie Van. Uh, for those who are wrestling with chemical and substance ab uh, abuse and addictions. Um, Alcoholics Anonymous came into being in the early part of this century, um, and they are a wonderful organization. And very frankly, it's a shame that Alcoholics Anonymous is performing a role that should be the church's. Uh, they've done a great job, and perhaps some of you owe your sobriety to Alcoholics Anonymous, and we applaud them but their program can be improved upon. Um, you may know that the second step of the 12 steps is to, con is to perceive of God in any way you might think him to be. Well, we want to offer something that is far more distinctly and definitively 
uh, Christ-centered and um, biblically based. Uh, the programs uh, we've come in contact with, and we want to uh, um, we want to offer that to you. Now, let me tell you this quickly. Your contact will be me. Alcoholics Anonymous is called anonymous for a reason, and we are here to protect your anonymity. Um, we're not going to tell you who's going to be leading it. We're not going to tell you when it's going to be meeting. We're, we're going to make sure that your anonymity, uh, in terms of your family, in terms of your employer, in terms of anyone you want to remain anonymous, uh, you can do so. You will contact me, no one else. You can call my secretary and say, can I speak to Dr. Young? But um, in terms of the, the subject matter of the phone call, it will be me that you will be dealing with. Uh, I won't be heading up the program. We have someone far more qualified, far more qualified than I. But if this is something that you're wrestling with, and by the way, it doesn't have to be a member of this church. Um, uh, even It doesn't even have to attend this church. If you'll get them in touch with me, then we will put them in touch with what needs to be done. And, um, and we'll get started here. But um, there is help available. Christ-centered, biblically driven, help. And perhaps uh, we should have started before now, but it is time to start now. That will begin today. If you are, um, if you know of any one, anything, contact me. And my commitment to you is your utter and complete anonymity. You have my word. Now, <clears throat> let's look at um, the passage that we've been studying for some time. It's in Luke chapter 15, of course, the parable of the prodigal son. Uh, because we're uh, um, <clears throat> still recovering from emotional breakdowns, let's, um, let's, look, let's begin reading at verse uh, 17 which uh, the parable, I think, is so familiar to all of you. The parable of the prodigal son. We'll begin at verse 17, and we'll, be, we'll read through verse 24. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have bread enough and to spare, and I perish with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you and am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father, and when he was still a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion, and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight, and am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring out the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet and bring the fatted calf here and kill it and let us eat and be merry for this my son was dead and is alive again he was lost and is found and they began to be merry the grass withers and the flower fades but the word of our God oh that endures forever when I was uh, in the midst of preparing this series on the prodigal son, I, uh, I finished up with verse 21, which we did last week. 
and um, uh, of course began to look at the next section and portion of the parable, and of course noticed that to be verses 21, 22, 23, and 24. And uh, I, I must confess, at that point was really eager to skip it and to move on to verse 25 because that uh, introduces us to another major section of the parable that I can't wait to get to. It, of course, has to do with the elder brother and his part in this whole uh, parable of the prodigal son. And I, I, I'm telling you, ladies and gentlemen, I can't wait uh, to get to the portion about the, prodigal, uh, about the elder brother in this parable of the prodigal son. But, of course, I couldn't do that. That is, uh, uh, you wouldn't let me, and, and it wouldn't be honorable to God to skip a portion of his word. So um, I, I will address it this morning. But I, I must confess again that I did think, well, what would we miss? If I skipped verses 22, 23, and 24, what would be left out? What, what, would, be, what would we miss in our overall uh, treatment of the parable if we just left out those three verses? Certainly not reconciliation. Reconciliation was effected in verse 20. But what we would miss is celebration. Extravagant celebration. And ladies and gentlemen, we must not miss this dimension, this element of the story that I think is, to, is inserted in it just to give us some idea of how full is the Father's heart when people repent. The Father um, doesn't, rather rudely, doesn't give his Son a chance to finish his apology. He uh, preempts his Son's begging by a, a, a spontaneous display of forgiveness and, and puts aside all of his pleas as almost completely irrelevant in the light of his excitement and his joy and his pleasure. He, he interrupts him, that is, the father interrupts the son in mid-sentence. What the son had planned to say and had architected while he was still in the faraway country, he doesn't even finish. Half of it, he doesn't even get a chance to say because his father interrupts him and, and prevents him from getting to that last half of, of his prepared statement. But, but there's more than even that, ladies and gentlemen. The father can't wait to see his son fully restored. And, and, and nothing is too good. The, the very best is to be brought out and given to him. There, there is a robe and a ring and, and of course, uh, perhaps symbols of familial and patriarchal authority. There are shoes for his um, bare feet. Um, you know, slaves don't wear shoes, but sons do. And, and then, of course, there's this fattened calf. You don't kill a fattened calf, ladies and gentlemen, unless you're going to have a party. Because there's just too much there to eat, and there's nothing worse in that culture than wasted food. And so when you kill the whole blasted thing, it's because you have an intent of having a party. Of the community, the village gathering and entering in to your excitement and your joy. And I, and I must tell you, gang, um, I think you know this, but when I, when I prepare the sermons, I read and I read and I read. And of course, in this parable, I've read more than usual. But there's a lot of to-do made 
about what the ring represents and what the robe represents and, and the shoes and, and all that business. And, and, and I say to you, ladies and gentlemen, in the final analysis, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what those little things may mean or what we may suggest that they mean. Because the, the issue is not, not to figure out what the ring symbolizes. And I'm not sure it symbolizes anything. Because what is intended is for us to step back and to get, a, get an appreciation of what's going on. To understand the grand scheme of things. And that can be summarized in one word. Celebration. Extravagant celebration. And when all is said and done about what the ring and the robe might represent, the beauty of the ring and the robe and the shoes was that they were, they were nothing more than outward displays of the Father's joy, of the Father's pleasure over His Son's restoration. Unfortunately, um, I'm reading from the New King James, and, and if you've got an NIV out there, you'll notice there's a word that's in there that um, didn't get brought into the, uh, the New King James. It's the word quick. In the margin, if you've got a New, uh, Geneva Study Bible, you'll notice that it says quickly bring as, uh, as the right way to translate. And, and that is the right way to translate it. Very frankly, ladies and gentlemen, the adverb quick is in the Greek text. Taku. I looked at it. Quick, says the father. Don't sit there and suck on a prune pit. Hurry. There, there is an excitement that the word quick allows us to insert. There is an excitement on the part of the father. You can almost see him as, as adrenaline begins to flow through his veins. He's not describing some kind of human impatience. He's just eager. There's an urgency on the part of the father to, to, to get that boy swept back into the family. You will notice also that the father doesn't say um, in verse 23, um, or in 24, the father does not say, my son was lost and he came home. He says, my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and now he's been found. In the, in the, in the, in the perspective of the father, what he's dealing with is a resurrection. A resurrection and a finding. Now, ladies and gentlemen, it becomes very important at this juncture to understand what's being celebrated. Who, um, who found whom? It's the Father who found. Let me uh, hopefully convince you of that. I'm suggesting, ladies and gentlemen, that this banquet, this celebration, is, is designed to celebrate the success of the Father's finding. 
You know, I, I, like you, am not used to the image of God throwing a big party. Uh, particularly in Southern evangelicalism, parties are associated with somebody else, you know? But in all three of these parables, and I told you that this is a part of a trilogy of parables, in all three of these parables, the finder is the re one rejoicing when the lost is found and in all three instances, the finder invites his friends to come celebrate with him. Look, look, at, the, look at chapter 15, verse 6. Um, and when he comes home, he calls together his friends and neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me. That's in the parable of the lost sheep. Then look at verse 9. This is in the parable of the lost coin. And when she has found it, she calls her friends and neighbors together saying, Rejoice with me. And then we come to the parable of the lost son. And then we find another celebration being called for. The point is, ladies and gentlemen, that the banquet is in celebration of the father's successful efforts at restoration. Rather than, rather than be participating in a ketsatsa ceremony that we've mentioned before, a ketsatsa of rejection, they are participating in the joy of a restoration achieved by the Father at great cost. Now, gang, stay with me. At this celebration... Who do you think it will be that the guests will congratulate? The prodigal or the father? Is this a banquet in honor of the prodigal or in honor of the father? Is it a celebration of the prodigal's successful efforts at reaching home on his own? Or is it rather a celebration of the success of the Father's costly efforts at creating shalom between him and his son again? Gang, think. In these other parables, um, what takes place when the lost is restored? Do people gather around the sheep and say, Way to go, sheep. You did really good, sheep. Getting back here to the fold. Does the lady go to her coin and say, oh, what a, what, a, what a wonderful thing it was that you did there, coin flipping yourself right out of that crack back here under the kitchen table? Who's, who's being celebrated? It's always the celebration of the finder, not, not the one lost. One other observation that I think will help, and I, and I, I, I borrow this from a... A pastor, a friend of mine, who makes this observation. Why, in, this, in this parable of shepherd and sheep thing, why do you think it's a shepherd and a sheep? Why isn't it a horse and a horse trainer? The reason, ladies and gentlemen, is because sheep absolutely needs a shepherd. Um, a horse without a horse trainer just simply runs wild. But a sheep without a shepherd dies. You've never seen a herd of wild sheep. But when you find a sheep 
You have to tie its legs and throw it over your shoulder. He doesn't come leaping into your arms. Oh, my friend, this celebration is in honor of what the Father has accomplished. Congratulations. Belong to him, not to me. Now, now, ladies and gentlemen, maybe you can understand why so many of us are so overcome with the whole idea of grace. You know, we sing about how amazing it is. It's almost more than that. In recognition of the amazingness of this grace, a party breaks out, celebrating how absolutely fascinating what the Father has done to restore somebody that spit on him. Gang, um, you know the name of Charles Dickens, a great um, author. Well, if you, if you study anything about Charles Dickens, you will discover that the reason that Charles Dickens is such a uh, well-received genius of an author, um, most experts would suggest that the reason that he is so wonderful is because of his creation and development of characters. At no place can you see that better than in his novel, um, David Copperfield. It's a long book. But there's, there's all kinds of character development in the book, David Copperfield. And one of the characters in the book, David Copperfield, is a man by the name of Mr. Pagotti, or Mr. Pagotti, whose daughter, little Emily, runs away from home. And Mr. Pagotti is determined to search for his little Emily. And in the book, uh, David Copperfield is speaking. David Copperfield is, the, is the, somewhat of the narrator and, the, of course, the main character in the book. But he says, and I'm quoting, I saw how carefully he adjusted, that is Mr. Pagotti, how Mr. Pagotti adjusted the little room, put a candle ready and the means of lighting it, and finally drew from a drawer one of her dresses, which he placed upon a chair. And then Mr. Pagotti sets out to find his prodigal daughter, saying that he, he would seek her until he died. And if he died in this pursuit, he would be glad if the news of his death would turn her heart towards home. What I, what I want you to picture in your mind's eye is the dress on the chair communicating to little Emily if she ever comes back. Everything is to be just as it always had been before. Now, the prodigal son comes home and says to his father that he is willing to take the role of a servant. 
you know, I've sinned against heaven, I've sinned against uh, you. Just make me as one of your hired servants. But the robe and the ring and the shoes tell him far more eloquently than words could tell him that his place was not to be in the servant's hall. His place was to be at his father's side. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is what we're celebrating. That's what's being depicted here, ladies and gentlemen, is that this father, having searched and found this lost son, is restoring him, not to servanthood, but restoring him to sonship. That, that everything is to go back to the way it was. Indeed, ladies and gentlemen, the focus of this celebration is to be fixed not on the, not on the successes of that boy. He has none. The achievement that evokes such a grand celebration That, ladies and gentlemen, is the result of who this father is, not that boy. What a great work the father has wrought in restoring to sonship this wayward prodigal. And in view of the great thing that he has done to do so, the New Testament erupts in a big party. I said to you, ladies and gentlemen, when we started this series, that this was a not a story about a son. It was not a parable about two sons. It's a parable about grace. It's a parable about all that the Heavenly Father has done to make it possible for wayward prodigals to be restored, not, to, not as servants, but as sons, and to underscore the magnificence of what he's done to accomplish that. A big party is thrown. I, I brought my painting back. And uh, this will probably be the last time. I, if those of you who didn't hear two months ago the, the first of these sermons, you might not know what that painting represents. But it is a Rembrandt print. And it's, of course, the depiction of the prodigal son. But I brought it back this morning because I wanted you to... Um, I wanted you to see the thing that, as I studied that picture, absolutely overcame me. In my efforts this morning to make clear who it is that needs to be congratulated, I didn't want you to completely forget the sun. At this moment that we're looking at in the text, at this moment of reconciliation and restoration, even resurrection. What do you think is the posture of the prodigal? 
um, maybe grinning from ear to ear, maybe bouncing up and down with delight, maybe winking at all the people, all the onlookers? I don't think so. I, I don't know that, but I don't think so. But I do want to point out to you what Rembrandt thought. When Rembrandt got ready to picture or depict the son's reception by the father, he portrayed him as one barefooted and bareheaded with his head buried in the bosom of his father. That, I suggest to you, ladies and gentlemen, is the only safe place for any sinner. I, I found a story that was told by one of my heroes, F.W. Borum, a story about this hymn that we sang this morning, the one that I requested. It is, of course, written by Charles Wesley, um, did you know that Charles Wesley wrote over 6,000 hymns? 6,000. And in the people that I read, they consider this his best. Of all the 6,000, this they considered the best. In the story that F.W. Borum tells, it's, it was rather funny because as I researched it, I, I discovered that the story that F.W. Borum told probably never happened. <laughs> it was probably a legend, and people made an uh, allusion to the story that F.W. Borum told and said, that ain't the truth. It never happened. But it's a good story anyway. I want to tell it to you. The story goes that Charles Wesley was one day standing at a front or back door enjoying um, fresh spring air and the, and the fragrances that accompany spring. And as he stood there and enjoyed the, um, what he was watching, the, the, this serene setting was somewhat interrupted by a sparrow that darted into his visage and was bouncing hither and thither trying to elude the chase of a of a hawk who was trying to eat him. And, and the, the hawk was frantically flying over all around and, and the, the hawk you know, matched him turn for turn. And Wesley said, right at the point where I thought his, his energy would be exhausted and he would be ultimately overtaken by the hawk, that the, the sparrow flew straight at him. And the sparrow buried himself in the folds of Charles Wesley's overcoat. It was at a juncture in Wesley's life where things were fairly anxious and stressful for him. And he saw that event as somewhat of a parable, picked up a piece of paper, and wrote the following words. Jesus! Lover of my soul, let me to thy bosom fly. 
while the nearer waters roll, while the tempest still is high. Hide me, O oh my Savior, hide, till the storms of life is past. Safe into thy heaven, God, O oh, rescue my soul at last. I'm not sure how well you can see this. But when Rembrandt got ready to depict this scene, as I said, he portrayed the prodigal, his head buried in the bosom of the father. Here's my question to you. At what point in this parable do you think Rembrandt is trying to portray? What, what, what spot, what point do you think in this parable Rembrandt is trying to depict with this scene? I don't know. I'm guessing that this scene comes right after the word Mary in verse 24. Right after the Father has announced a celebration because of the resurrection of his wayward prodigal. And the only normal, natural, predictable place for a sinner to head is to bury that head in the bosom of the Father. It's time to celebrate, ladies and gentlemen. It's time to celebrate not what we have done, but what the Father has done to restore us. Let me pray. Our Father, we, uh, our words fall short of depicting a God who throws a party when, um, when wayward prodigals return. Uh, we're not used to that. We're used to being rewarded because of merit or performance. And it is here that we discover that the one that needs to be congratulated is the Father. The one who designed a salvation so rich, so free, so full, so amazing that prodigals like us would be welcome to bury our heads in the bosom of that Father. No other place, oh God, is there safety for people like me. But we delight to think that your reception is, your reception for us is like the reception for this prodigal. A ring, a robe, shoes, all to prepare us 
to go to the party. Might that, O oh God, feed us at the deepest parts of our souls. We ask it, of course, in Jesus' name. Amen. As we, um, we close by... It's an invitation, and yet we sing. One of the reasons that we sing is because we want to give you a chance to shout something into the face of God. We choose this pretty carefully, too, because we hope it would be a reasonable response to what you've heard, something that could be sung in celebration of God's great grace. But while we sing, if you've completed the new members class and feel like Jesus has led you to this place, we want you to come forward. We'd, we just want to welcome you among us. But if, if you're here and you don't know where you stand in relationship to this Christ, we don't ask you to come up here. We do suggest, before you leave, grab hold of me or Richard. Give us an opportunity to try and answer the questions that so disturb you. It would be our privilege. Would you stay with me as Richard Clark's business? Now may the God of peace who brought up our Lord Jesus Christ from the dead, that great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant, make you complete in every good work to do his will, working in you that which is well-pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Thank you, and have a wonderful Sabbath.